Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and here we are. This is the final episode for 2019, which means the very next episode after this will be coming to you from the Roaring Twenties, can you believe it? Uh, if you are a regular regular listener to the podcast, thanks so much for tuning in this year. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed bringing this to you and also the interactions I've had with a bunch of you over the course of the last year. Uh, in many respects, I think this first full year of In The Shift has been about examining, critiquing and challenging some of the beliefs that certain versions of Christianity often lay on people, certainly uh, certain versions of, of that which I've inherited um, and had to reflect on and deconstruct and pull apart and then perhaps start to try and put back together again. And um, so I've been suggesting some different ways of, of thinking about some of those things. And as we move forward, I'm interested in some more constructive conversations about what we do with all of this. Where to from here? Uh, on some of the things, we've simply scratched the surface. There are other uh, subjects we haven't touched at all. And there are loads of people I want to interview and bring to you on the podcast going forward. So I'm excited about what's ahead in 2020. Don't forget, of course, that you can support In The Shift podcast on Patreon. So jump onto patreon.com slash in the shift uh, it's very early days but just if you want to jump in get in, jump in get in behind what we're trying to do here help us a bit financially as we move forward into the future uh, so yeah that would be great we have nearly arrived at Christmas and I don't know where in the world you are I know uh, that there are a lot of listeners from in the shift that are here in New Zealand where I am but we also have a number of people in Australia, North America, Canada, Europe who listen to the podcast too. So if you're on the other side of the world, I guess you're heading into Christmas in the cold, which I've never done. I've spent every Christmas in New Zealand. Um, maybe you've got the snow, I don't know. Maybe all the Christmas carols make sense where you are. Whereas on this side of the globe, we have to have this weird experience of singing songs about roasting chestnuts on open fires and huddling inside while the snow falls in the middle of sort of sweltering heat and humidity and having barbecues and going to the beach. So um, that's the kind of weird paradoxical situation we find ourselves in here. Uh, I guess we can thank North Northern Hemisphere colonisation for all of that. <laughs> anyway, whether you're on the beach, huddled in front of a fire, whatever conditions you find yourself in, I hope you're doing all right. This time of year can, I guess it can be lots of fun for some and lots of work for some, and then lots of grief and anxiety and all sorts of other complicated stuff for some too. Uh, maybe it's a mixture of all of that. So whatever it is, may you find a sense of presence and a bit of peace in the midst of it all. So into our final discussion for the year, and it is the final episode of our In the Flesh series in which we've been talking about faith and God and belief and spirituality and how all of this intersects with us as embodied creatures. And, uh, and so in this episode, uh, I want to give some reflections about the kind of spirituality that I think we might be invited into, some ways of thinking through an embodied faith. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh, a few things that might seem disparately not connected, but in fact, I think uh, are very connected. So we're going to think about how we store memory and where we store it, how our bodies can surprise us about what we believe or don't, about the intersections between mysticism and revolution and how not to get angry in the process of change. So, this is episode 30 of In The Shift. Let's get into it.
Okay, so one of the things that has been mentioned a number of times throughout this In the Flesh series is the common assumption that many of us hold, and whether you're religious or not, in fact, that the real us is something other than our bodies, whether we imagine that to be some kind of conscious mind that is something other than us or some kind of notion of the soul. And I've pushed back on that kind of disembodied us idea a number of times, not because I want to reduce us to some kind of non-interesting, soulless creature, but instead it's it's really because we've so de-emphasized our bodies that we often forget the fact that we're embodied creatures and that that's integral to what it means to be human. And when we do that, when we forget that, uh, we struggle, I think, to to pay attention to our own embodiment in ways that might help us learn what it is to be healthy and human in the fullest sense of the word. So um, I want to continue unpacking that or, or finish off unpacking that in this episode. And to begin with, I want to remind us of the different ways that we know things and the different ways we remember things. So one of the ways of thinking about this is from a scientific point of view. There are at least, at least two different kinds of knowledge that we can acquire as human beings. And there's one that we most commonly think about, and that's the rational, conscious, logical knowledge that's associated with our linguistic centre, our language, and so on. It's the kind of knowledge that, you know, makes you uh, write and record a podcast and then have someone else listen to it and listen to your ideas and ponder them and think about them. Uh, this kind of rational, conscious, logical knowledge centre that we hold in our neocortex and, and largely in the left hemisphere of our brain. Um, but there's another kind of knowledge as well, which is sometimes called procedural knowledge, and that's connected not really to our rational, logical, conscious self as much as it is to our emotional self, to our embodiment uh, in ways that are often unconscious and even pre-linguistic. So it might be things, the kind of data that our body gathers all of the time uh, that we don't necessarily think through rationally or consciously and sometimes couldn't, if someone asked us, simply just reel off a bunch of information about it and yet that knowledge is held uh, either in our unconscious, in our body, wherever it might be. And um, and this all these two types of knowledge also relate in some sense to the kind of memories that we store as well. So uh, again, the, the kind of memory we most often think about is often what's called declarative memory. And so that relates to those things that we consciously and linguistically recall, you know, those things that we can bring to mind, that we can remember in some kind of narrative form, some kind of linguistic form. But there's another kind of memory as well, and that's uh, what can be referred to as implicit memory. And this is memories that aren't stored necessarily in the conscious neocortex, or at least not obviously. They can't necessarily be recalled in clear, rational, narrative form, but they actually do still reside in the body, nevertheless. So it's these second forms here, the kind of procedural knowledge or the implicit memory, that are in fact the first thing to develop. So although they're often not the thing we think of first because they are they don't tend to, you know, they're not the thing that comes to mind because what comes to mind for us is that which can more easily come to mind, of course, which is our declarative memory and our kind of rational conscious knowledge. But it's these other forms that actually uh, develop first in little babies, right? So um, before we're able to store memories in some kind of conscious linguistic declarative sense, 
we are actually able to store knowledge and memory in our bodies and in our neural pathways and through learned patterns and behaviours that develop when we're very young. And so while we might not be able to say, oh yes, this happened to me when I was six months old, firstly I did this and then I did this and then we went on a holiday to, you know, wherever, uh, that's not the kind of story you can tell about yourself as a six-month-old baby. And yet, your body has learnt things, your body now knows things, uh, your, your brain has stored a bunch of information, your bodies hold a bunch of memory, and depending on your experiences at that time, you know, that, those memories and that knowledge built can shape you in really, really important ways. Now, what this all means when we have these, and, and, and I'm sort of oversimplifying or overgeneralizing perhaps here, but if we have, you know, this declarative memory and this implicit memory or this kind of uh, rational knowledge and then also this uh, um, embodied and emotionally centered uh, knowledge or procedural knowledge, embodied knowledge, um, sometimes what that means is we can actually hold multiple beliefs that don't agree at the same time, which is a curious thing if you've ever thought, and I'm sure you're aware of this as a human being. So one of the things, for example, you might say is, I really struggle with low self-esteem, but I'm not sure why. Surely I've done the hard work now. Why do I still struggle with this? And there's two things going on there. One is, I have low self-esteem. And the second is, I don't think I should have low self-esteem because, in fact, I think I'm worthy of much more than that. So on one level, you think you are, but obviously, in another sense and on another level, you think you aren't worthy of that. And those two things can be held kind of paradoxically in your own self at the same time. And this is where a lot of our internal conflict and struggle comes when we are trying to wrestle with these incongruent beliefs. And often our own processing work and our own work of transformation is actually bringing the, the, the conflict between those beliefs to the surface and actually acknowledging it, seeing it and realizing that it's there. Now, because some of these beliefs that we hold are, in fact, not immediately obvious to us, maybe they're not, you know, if someone asks you, what do you believe about that? It might not be the thing that you say. Sometimes you'll discover what you really believe by paying attention to the body itself. And so we might ask ourselves, why do I suddenly want to eat when I get this feeling? Or why do I smile when I'm uncomfortable why do I tense up when I see this person? Or why do I react when I smell this smell? Lots of bodily reactions that tell us that we either believe or intuit or remember things that we might not actually be consciously aware of. Our bodies hold that kind of memory for us. And experts in trauma will talk about how the body holds the memory of trauma too, often in ways that the conscious mind may not. So Psychologists and mindfulness experts and, and others will tell us that sometimes it's the body itself that can actually give us insight into what we might call our core organizing beliefs. The core organizing beliefs are those things that we believe that help us to make sense of ourselves and the world we live in. And, you know, I would like to think, <laughs> in a really simplistic sense, that our core organizing beliefs are just those things that we really obviously, rationally, consciously believe. Uh, and so if we bump into a problematic one, all we have to do is go, oh, I'm not going to believe that anymore. I'm now going to believe this. Uh, and yet, uh, sometimes what we discover, often what we discover, is that those things are a little more challenging to unpick because they're not just this piece of knowledge that we need to change. There's a whole embodied experience that needs to be unpacked, understood, unwound, and kind of put back together again. 
Sometimes what we'll discover in this process is that we actually believe some really troubling things, maybe about ourselves, maybe about God. Maybe you'll find that, you know, if someone was to ask you, you say, yes, yes, of course, I believe God is loving, and yet you encounter a certain situation or you go into a certain environment and you realize anxiety begins to rise in your chest and maybe you find out, if you pay attention to that, that you don't trust the idea of a loving God quite as much as you thought. Sometimes we discover that we don't believe some of the things we think we believe. Uh, I was reading uh, David Bentley Hart's new book uh, the other day. It's a book um, really taking apart the whole notion of eternal torment, you know, hell. We, we did a series in In The Shift uh, much earlier in the year on hell, pulling apart those kind of notions of eternal suffering and God sending people off to to suffer in eternal torment forever. And David Bentley Hart, who's a who's a wonderful writer and theologian, albeit uh, slightly um, provocative in his way of communicating, he certainly pulls no punches. Let's say that he's he's written a book um, recently on this subject. But one of the things he reflects on is is that he doesn't really think all that many people really believe in the notion of hell as some kind of eternal torment, even if they say they do. He suggests rather they believe in their belief of it rather than in it itself because if you pay attention to their embodied lives, they don't live in the kind of way that suggests they really do believe it. He even goes to the point of saying, why would somebody have children if there was even a possibility, let alone a probability, that those children were going to spend eternity in some kind of suffering or conscious torment like uh, many religious people believe the bulk of humanity are going to do. And so in that sense then, the embodied life and the embodied practices of life tell us maybe we don't believe the things we think we do. Now, as a theologian and a communicator and a writer and a lecturer and a podcaster, I suppose, that makes me stop and think, right? Because so much of my profession is dealing with people uh, and what they consciously know and think. Uh, and the importance of that. And I still want to maintain the importance of that, otherwise I'm going to convince myself out of a job. But if I think that all I have to do for myself is to just know and think the right things and then I'll become the person I want to be, then I'm set up for disappointment. And I'm sure you're already aware of that about yourselves. And if I think when I'm teaching a theology class that all I have to do is dispense this knowledge or convince people of these things that I have come to know, then their lives will suddenly change for the better. Then again, I'm set up for major disappointment because we cannot approach faith and spirituality and theology or personal transformation transformation as if it's some kind of exercise in um, worldview building or just collecting a set of ideas or bullet points or facts. It's not enough. And so we need to pay attention to our bodies because sometimes our bodies can tell us what we really believe. Sometimes we demonstrate what we really believe by our embodied actions in the world. And so if we're not thinking about our whole embodied selves when we think about spirituality and faith and human flourishing, then we often miss, I think, so much of what's really going on. And perhaps, I don't know, perhaps this is why those people who seem to find their way to a place of real groundedness in the world have often cultivated some form of spiritual practices that are embodied and that help to connect them to their whole selves and to God and to other people. Some of the time, I, I think we find 
the things we say we believe and consciously, rationally, logically believe can in fact become a replacement for real embodied belief. Uh, let me explain that a little bit. I think uh, let's let's say, for example, I uh, believe caring for the poor is important, which I do. And let's say even I'm a part of a faith community that talks about how important it is week after week after week. Perhaps I gather in small groups and in prayer meetings and I remind myself of this idea that caring for the poor is important. Well, in some respects, that can almost become a replacement for caring for the poor, <laughs> you know? In the saying that I believe it and care about it, care about them, I convince myself that I'm the kind of person who cares about them, even if my embodied, lived experience doesn't demonstrate any level of caring really at all. In fact, in this sense then, convincing myself that I believe it actually makes it harder to put it into practice to some degree because I'm already convinced I do it even when I don't. Psychologically, I care for the poor, but that doesn't make a lot of difference to them. Now, one of the ways of thinking about this challenge, and I do find this deeply challenging, is to think about three words in relation to theological conversations, that orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathy. Those are three complicated words, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and ortho. Pathy. Now you might have heard of some of them. Orthodoxy has to do with belief. You know, what are the things that we believe? What grounds are there for believing the things that we believe and why do we believe them? Are those beliefs consistent with uh, life as we know it and with our experience and with what we know of God or not? Um, Orthodoxy has to do with belief, and often religious people are very interested in orthodoxy. You know, do you believe the right things? And if you do, you're kind of in the club, and if you don't, well, your membership's a little, a little sketchy. Um, that's orthodoxy. But the church tradition, and especially in the West perhaps, is often criticised for this overemphasis on orthodoxy at the expense of what we call orthopraxy, and orthopraxy has to do with what we put into practice, to do with action. How do we actually live in the world? And so for many uh, religious folks, certainly within uh, kind of certain streams of the Christian church, many streams of the Christian church, if we're honest, salvation, for example, is about believing the right things about God and Jesus, so that someone can say the right things about God and Jesus, then they're saved or in or right. They belong. Now that person can in fact use and abuse people in their everyday life, but they'll still be considered more right and more in than someone who doesn't necessarily get all the things about Jesus right, in quotation marks, but who lives a life of compassion and care for those around them. That person, even though they live this embodied life of compassion and care and love, will find themselves still not really in because they don't say or 
believe or proclaim exactly the right formula of belief. Now, I got so into that point that I crashed my glasses against the microphone, so that'll be the little sound you heard. <laughs> um, right, that was a little a tidbit too for podcast listeners. Yes, I do wear glasses, and it is a occupational hazard, obviously, in recording. So what does this mean then for those who hold to some sort of religious or spiritual framework? Do religious people gather together simply to convince ourselves that we're believing the right things? Or at some point, as there's this confrontation with what this might mean for the way we actually live and treat people and operate in business and include those on the margins and relate to the environment and so on. This was one of the great insights of liberation theology that emerged in the 60s and 70s in particular, firstly out of Latin America, but then also among among other oppressed and marginalized peoples uh, throughout the world. Liberation theology said, look, the church has spent all of its time on orthodoxy, on right belief, but it hasn't that hasn't translated to orthopraxy. There's no translation to action. And, and, and so your belief is hollow and vacuous because it doesn't translate to real action in the world. And what does that really mean at the end of the day? And so liberation theologians have challenged the church to say, what you believe has to be brought to bear on the way that we live, on the systems that we build, on the economics that we practice, on the politics that we engage in. But there's also a third ortho that I mentioned here, and it's mentioned much, much less often, and that's orthopathy. And orthopathy has to do with pathos. It has to do with the heart, the emotions, what's sometimes called the affections. And, and I think if we have orthodoxy... Um, and even orthopraxy, but we have no orthopathy if we haven't cultivated the loves and affections and the heart. Then what we do in the world, what we believe in the world, even what we practice in the world, lacks a sense of connectedness and love and authenticity. And even orthopraxy itself can become grounded in agitation and anger and hatred and then even ultimately violence unless somehow there's this cultivation of the heart. So again, as a theologian, it can be tempting for me to participate in religious systems and, 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 and teach and lecture and, and communicate and think, look, we must believe all the right things. And of course, what we believe genuinely matters. I'm not wanting to take it away from that, obviously. If you believe God is an angry, violent tyrant, then it's a pretty difficult starting point for trying to build a life-giving faith on. What we believe does matter. But then I also hope for a faith, for a spirituality that's somehow wrapped up in beliefs and practice that are both integrated into a heart, into into me that is being transformed, that I would become not just a more knowledgeable person, not someone who just implements policies or practices or ways of being, but that I would become a more loving, generous, kind, inclusive, merciful, forgiving kind of person. So I want to suggest a couple of ways of thinking about how we might... Um, address this kind of challenge or this kind of problem. And I want to do so by drawing on the insights of Henry Nouwen, who is a Catholic mystic and writer who passed away in the mid-90s, but especially through the, the 60s, 70s and 80s, I wrote a number of works that are incredibly insightful and meaningful and, and challenging to the way we might live in the world. In 1972, he published a book called The Wounded Healer, and it's this incredibly perceptive book that still speaks, I think, to what is going on now for many of us. And what he identifies, 
even in the early 70s here, is that there's the sense that people have lost this kind of naive faith in progress. Now, he doesn't really use the term postmodern, and perhaps that term is still really just emerging. But he does, in a sense, describe the the late 20th and early 20th century condition of a loss of faith in progress, especially of the West, in the wake of world wars, in the wake of nuclear threat, in the wake of ecological crisis. And, you know, we might add to that now a list of other things, including the rise of authoritarianism and and um, and the rising divisions uh, between different groups and sides uh, in the world at the moment. And so he's describing this kind of uh, loss of faith, this suspicion of the world, this um, the optimism of the kind of nineteenth and maybe early twentieth century is, has been has been stripped away from us. And so he talks uh, about three aspects of what that means for us as human beings. One is historical dislocation. So he talks about this idea that we've kind of just got this break in connection with the past and the future because now we have this distrust of institutions a distrust of what has gone before us. We recognise perhaps that the history uh, that we had been sold is in fact not quite like that. And so what do we do with that? The meaning that's provided by our history kind of disappears from under our feet. Um, And then belief in some kind of wonderful future disappears as well because we kind of lose a sense of optimism about where this is going. And so all we're left with really is the moment, is the now, is what do we have in this experience that I have right now. And so the first thing he, he, he notes is this kind of historical dislocation. The second thing is this sense of fragmented ideology. In other words, we've got, all of, we've got less rigid boundaries around the things that we believe, exposure to lots and lots of different ideas. And in the end, instead of holding to those and cultivating them as kind of permanent fixtures, you know, we... We have to just kind of use whatever is going to help us get through the current moment. And he's he's not saying this is a problem as much as it is just an observation of what's changed. And in all of this then, there's this what he calls a search for a new immortality, this attempt to find new ways to transcend the limitations of being human, especially in the West perhaps where we, we believe a lot less now uh, in the whole notion of heaven and hell and those kind of future trajectories that really shaped the Western mind for so long. Well, how now do we transcend, escape, find some kind of meaning? So rather than saying this is terrible or this is a problem, he just wants to reflect on the reality of it, that this is, and that in this place there are still perhaps a couple of things that will help us find a way forward and they're integrated with a kind of spirituality. And these two ideas in particular that he speaks of are mysticism and a revolution. And he wants to entwine these two together rather than separating them out. So for now, in, in mysticism, people turn inward. They're looking for the great sense of connectedness with with God, with the divine or with the ground of all being. So rather than um, trying to connect perhaps with institutions or even with uh, institutional religion or a kind of a historical tradition. And a lot of people are understandably suspicious of many of those. We're actually trying to find meaning just 
by a sense of connectedness. And, and, you know, you see the rise both within religious traditions and outside of, of meditation and mindfulness as this kind of way of trying to connect both to ourselves and to others. And I think the real positive thing to be gained from this in religious traditions and, and both in and outside of the institutions is this sense of meaningful connectedness that isn't just about believing all of the right things, but it is in fact in some way about experiencing something, someone, someone's. And so there's this need for mysticism in the sense of connectedness, connectedness to others, connectedness to self, and connectedness to something more than ourselves. And then now one also wants to talk about the revolutionary way, this recognition that in fact it's only radical change that will ultimately really save us as human beings from what we're doing to ourselves. And maybe this is becoming increasingly important as we look at ecological disaster and global crises of various kinds. So we have this kind of mysticism, this sense of desire for connectedness, but also this desire for radical change. Now, for now, and either of those on their own can become a problem, right? Mysticism can just cause us to withdraw from the world, become totally narcissistic as we pursue our own form of kind of enlightenment, transcendence, and connectedness. Or the revolutionary can seek to try and change the world, but without that sense of connectedness, it just becomes an exercise in ego and ambition and reaction and agitation, anger, and often violence. And so now I wants to suggest instead that the mystical and the revolutionary can come together. Now as a Christian, now and uses Jesus as a way to try and image the coming together of the revolutionary and the mystic. And he says that Jesus was a revolutionary who did not become an extremist since he did not offer an ideology but himself. He was also a mystic who did not use his intimate relationship with God to avoid the social evils of his time but shocked his milieu to the point of being executed as a rebel. So for now in, Jesus brings together these two different ways of being in the world at the intersection of this point in time, this mystical sense of connectedness and this embodied sense of concrete action, but that they go together. Because what he's not offering, what, what now wants to say is not offered in the Jesus story is simply an ideology, simply a, you must believe these things and then you'll be saved. But instead what he offers is himself, his person, his presence, his embodiedness, his compassion. And so the revolution that Jesus offers isn't really about imposing his ideology on others, but actually offering his life to embody a different way of being in the world. And to me, this is a great challenge. I, I want to be grounded in a sense of connectedness, of being connected to whatever we mean, might mean by the divine, by God. I want to be connected to others. I want to cultivate a love of the other. But I don't want this just to be some kind of anemic personal piety, you know, this kind of personal spirituality that that functions for me in some kind of self-serving way, but at the expense of seeking real change in the world around me. But on the other hand, I don't want to adopt some kind of change-the-world ideology that then thinks my way of seeing the world is the one that everyone else needs to get on board with and all I have to do is just convince people or impose upon people my set of commitments or beliefs. Then I just become another fundamentalist, another guru, another person trying to impose my way of being onto others. Instead, the challenge here 
is not just to offer ideology or beliefs, but to offer myself, to give my embodied life to a way of kindness and justice and of self-giving love. And that takes an embodied set of practices. It takes paying attention to what I believe and what I struggle to believe. It takes paying attention to what my body might tell me about where I hold agitation and anxiety and pain and grief and loss and trauma. It involves paying attention to how how certain spiritual practices might help connect me to my own embodiedness. And in finding that place of connectedness and groundedness, I might actually be able to open my eyes and encounter others in the sense in which they embody their own life and breath presence in the world and if I can embody and connect and see and observe then maybe I can also act and put into practice that which I desire to be and this is not some kind of um, chicken egg situation of what comes before the other but somehow it's this desire for an integrated self that seeks to change and um, I don't say this as someone who in some sense has done, integrated, perfected this kind of strategy. I share this as the kind of challenge I find myself taking up as I come towards the end of a decade and into a new one. So I got quite earnest there at the end of that little rant. So, you know, thanks for bearing with me. Those are my reflections from our In the Flesh series. I think there's a profound invitation here to a way of transformation and of liberation and of change. If there's something of help to you in that, then please receive it. So that is in the shift for 2019. We are going to head into a little wee mini summer break just for Christmas and New Year's and so on. We're going to be back in January of 2020. And I'm excited for what is ahead. Don't forget, you can contact me, email intheshift.com, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Patreon. Thanks again to Reese Michel for his sound massaging skills. This has been In The Shift for 2019. See you next time.